Uh, Good morning, brothers and sisters. It is a joy to be with you all uh, this morning. Uh, I just want to kind of double-click real quick on an announcement that Pastor Brandon made uh, regarding membership. Uh, So, uh, as he mentioned, uh, we have a membership class, a new members class that's coming up on October the 2nd. Um, We are an uh, elder-led congregationalist church, so our members play a huge part in the life and the decisions that we make as a church. It's not elder-ruled. We don't just tell the church this is what's going to happen. We make decisions collectively, Um, so there's items that the members vote on and uh, the, really, the, the doctrine of the church, the accountability, is left to uh, the, the church body. And so we do this together as a family. So membership is very important. Um, if you are a college student, we've also thought ahead of, uh, of that. We know we live in a, a college town with a Christian uh, college, so there's going to be a lot of, uh, thankfully, right, a lot of college students that are looking for uh, churches to attend while they're in uh, this city. And so we have... Uh, developed a a provisional membership. And so basically what that means is that uh, while you're here, if you're going to be in uh, Lynchburg for, uh, you know, on and off for uh, the next year or more, then what we would uh, like to help you do is to find a church home and to stay put. uh, To really, uh, we really want to oppose the ideas of, of church hopping. I really want to oppose the idea of uh, finding that uh, church that, you know, you're going here one day with uh, a friend and you're going this one next Sunday with another friend, but uh, really finding a home where you can serve and also be served, uh, to be known. Uh, And we want to make sure that everyone uh, in the body of Christ has uh, that body of believers that care for them and that they serve as well. So, uh, what provisional membership, and we talk more about that in the membership class, the new members class, and what it, uh, basically it's, it's everything that r- uh, normal membership uh, entails, but it just, we, we don't say, hey, you have to relinquish membership at your home church. Uh, we work in partnership with your home church, uh, make sure you're in good standing with that church, and then we uh, talk with them and say, hey, uh, we're going to work with you, and uh, we're going to care for said a person while they're here, and we're going to ensure that uh, no member of, uh, no sheep, uh, or no member of the flock are left without a church home. So uh, if you have questions about that, you can always email me, Tyler, at ccfva.org. You can email the info at ccfva.org. Uh, you can sign up for the new members class uh, through the newsletter. That's the best way. If you're not getting the newsletter, send an email to info at ccfva.org, and all you do is just put newsletter. Um, I'd like to receive the newsletter, put newsletter in the subject line, and uh, we'll get you hooked up there, uh, get you uh, on that mailing list. But we send out in the newsletter uh, a lot of vital information, uh, what, what we're doing, the songs we're going to be singing, right? We believe in congregational singing. It's not a performance. This uh, team, uh, as wonderful as they are, they are to accompany you. And so that's what we really want to uh, um, be a proponent of uh, within this body. And so uh, we send out the songs. We send out the text we're going to be preaching and uh, other helpful information. So sign up for the newsletter. It's very important um, as we journey together as a church family. Uh, We are going to continue today in our look at the minor prophet Amos. And I've said this before, I'll say it again, uh, Amos is not minor in its significance and contribution to God's word, minor in its length, Uh, that's what the minor prophets uh, would be. And so today we're going to look at Amos chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 13 through 15. You remember last week, uh, really honed in on verse 12, uh, camped out there, and we kind of looked at the devastation of the judgment of God, and what that meant for the people then and us now. And today we're going to look at 13 through 15 as we close out this chapter. Amos chapter 3. 13 through 15, if you're new to the Bible, uh, check your table of contents, uh, ask your neighbor, there's no shame in that. Uh, If you need a physical copy, as Brandon said, there are some in the back, raise your hand, an usher will grab you one. Uh, But we want you to be in your word, we want you to have it in front of you, we want you to mark it up, circle it, highlight it, 
uh, do whatever is necessary, that you draw attention to God's word and what he has to say. So I'm going to read 13 through 15 for us, and then I'm going to pray and ask God for his help. Then we will dive into his word today. Verse 13 reads this, Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness in giving us your word to guide and direct us in our daily lives. Lord, we need your help right now. We want to be made new. We want to be transformed. We want to have our minds renewed in this moment. And I cannot do that alone. Need your help, your spirit to work in and through this time. Father, would you change us? Would you help us to leave different than we walked in? And what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? What we have not, would you give us? By your grace, for your glory, in Christ's name, and God's people said. <clears throat> have you ever been faced with a decision that requires much deliberation? Uh, where you've got to take some time and, and really think about what you're going to do. Maybe you, you think about it, you, you, you weigh out your options, you analyze each option and, and what the result could be if you were to choose A, B, C, D. Maybe it's a personal family situation you've had. Maybe it's a big purchase. You're deciding what purchase, a home, a car. You're trying to figure out uh, how to best use your money to glorify God. Maybe it's school. You're trying to make the decision of where should I attend school? What should I do with my future? Uh, decision of who you're going to marry. It's a pretty big decision. Some of y'all, it's what you're going to wear. Deliberate. Figure out. What am I going to do? How am I going to put this together? Some of you, it's, it's what you order at a restaurant. It's like, just choose something, right? We'll come back. This won't be the last time we eat here. Just pick something. I want you to think about the time, the energy, the, maybe the, the counsel you receive, the conversations around that decision, maybe even the stress that that decision causes, how it affected you. And I want you to think of kind of what the outcome was. Did you get it right? <laughs> the decision that you made, was it the outcome that you wanted? That, was it a good outcome? Was it a bad outcome? As humans, we're, we're all faced with decisions, Right? And sometimes decisions, they take much deliberation. They take much consideration. We must pause. We must think about what we're going to do, how we're going to react to said situation. And as we look at our text today, we see that our God does the same thing. God certainly takes Consideration deliberates in his decisions that he makes. He does not counsel anyone who can counsel our God. God is perfect in all things. And I think it's helpful for us to reconcile this idea as we think about the judgment of God. 
right? Last week, we looked at the devastation of God's judgment. That God's judgment is devastating. It is drastic. It's a tough pill to swallow. It's often hard to reconcile in our limited and, and finite minds. But as we see the devastation of God's judgment, we must also see the intentionality of God's judgment, the deliberation here. And today our text shows us that God's judgment is indeed deliberate. It's deliberate. See, our God is a God who acts with purpose. He is not rash. He's not reckless. He's not impulsive, making decisions on a whim. God's ways are right. They're perfect. He has infinite wisdom and authority to exercise his wisdom however he chooses. That's the main idea today. If you leave here believing that truth, then you will blessed. You'll be benefited. So I want to look at this text under the headline, the heading of God's judgment is deliberate. And we're going to kind of look at two different categories here. Uh, one, we're going to see that it's aimed at specific people here in our text. And then we'll see that it's aimed at specific sins. So God's judgment is deliberate, it's intentional, it's aimed at specific people, it's aimed at specific sins. Let's look at verses 13 through 14. Amos says, hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. Once again, we're seeing that these, these are not just Amos' words here. He says, this is the word of God. And he says that on that day I punish Israel for his transgressions. We'll pump the brakes and stop right there. So we see some specific people mentioned here. We see some people being called out. We see the house of Jacob in verse 13. And we see Israel in 14, the beginning, 14a. And in whole, what this is, is a reference to the Israelites, which were what? They were God's covenant people in this time. But the term, the house of Jacob, holds a very high significant implication as well. Uh, this phrase was likely used to evoke the historical relationship of the forefather with God had mentioned in Genesis 28. Uh, if you remember that story, uh, this is sometimes referred to as Jacob's ladder, right? I'll, I'll read that for us, right? Jacob had fallen asleep. Uh, he had this dream of a ladder that reached to heaven. And then uh, Genesis 28, 13 through 17 reads this. It says, and behold, the Lord stood above it. This is the ladder that Jacob is dreaming about, this vision that he's having. And the Lord said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And then he goes on, he says, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. We see God just, he's acting. He's, he's telling Jacob, I'm, I'm going to do these things for you. And then Jacob awoke from his sleep. So he wakes up. He's like, what just happened? And here's what he says. He says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid, and he said, how awesome is this place. 
This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. There's a lot of implications, a lot of theological implications there, but for our purpose here, we see that what's happening here is that the Lord is speaking to Jacob. And and this actually, uh, the house of God is actually a reference to Bethel, which we'll get to here in a moment. But I want you to notice here the terminology that the Lord is using to further indict Israel in Amos. Saying, remember, you're the house of Jacob. And you will now be punished. You will be judged. He's reminding them, right, that their forefather, Jacob, had committed himself and his household, right, his people, to the glory, to the worship of the Lord God, the one true God of the Bible. It is very specific language. I mean, he's saying like the, the, the target is, is locked and loaded here. It's locked in on a very specific group. Because this group, what did they have done, right? They departed. They went their own way. They started doing their own thing. And then here in our text, we see that they're hearing this prophetic call to repent because judgment was on the way, specifically for them. Locked and loaded. Ready to unleash. Um, I can imagine this being similar to being called by your full name as you were a child, right? You know, when my mom said, Tyler... Like, all right. She said, Tyler Cash. Say, okay. She said, Tyler John Joseph Cash. I knew I was in trouble. Like, it it was about to go down. But the severity here is much more devastating, drastic than anything our parents could have ever carried out. This is the judgment of Holy Creator God. The righteous wrath, the justified wrath, as we looked at last week, of the creator of the universe. No beginning, no end. I am who I am. And he's going to judge them. We see in verse 13 that the Lord is called God of hosts. Now, this title occurs two other times in this prophecy, and it occurs 261 times in the Old Testament. God of hosts is used to express the immeasurable power and might of holy creator God. Like like you can't even fathom the power of this God. He is the God of hosts. This word host is translated from a Hebrew word that means multitudes of an army. Like, they've got reinforcements. And the reinforcements have reinforcements. And and they have reinforcements. And they're coming in at all angles, all sides. And they have one job. Destroy. God rules this. He declares this. This alludes to the image of God as this commander-in-chief. He's exercising supreme command and control over all of creation. He's doing whatever is needed to fulfill his will in whatever ways that he deems necessary. True then, true today. Listen to the psalmist speak of God's power in Psalm 46. 8 through 11, he says, Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. It it, it should evoke stillness, fear. 
We should pause. We should stop. We should think about this God. And he says, I will be exalted among the nations. There is none like me. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts, here the psalmist is using this same language, is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Or consider Psalm 115, verse 3, where it's simply said, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. I mean, i got to ask you, is that your God? Is that the God that you worship? The God that does all that He pleases. And if you answer no to that, then uh, let me warn you that you don't worship the God of the Bible. I love you enough to tell you that. All throughout Scripture, we are told of a God who is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. And this God is in total control. No mulligans with God. He doesn't need a second try. Doesn't need a second chance to fix what he messed up. God is in control of all things, and he does whatever is needed to fulfill his purposes, to bring glory to his name, to carry out his sovereign will throughout the earth. And in context, here in Amos, we see God accomplishing his sovereign will by sending Israel's neighboring nations to destroy them because of their habitual rebellion and disobedience. Remember what was said in verse 11. You can look uh, right above there, right? It says, An adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you. Your strongholds shall be plundered. So God is going to use this foreign nation, an adversary of Israel to destroy the Israelites and to distribute God's judgment. And here, God reminds them that this isn't haphazard. This isn't impulsive. It's not reckless. His distribution of judgment has been considered. It has been well earned by the people. And it's aimed at a specific people that God knows well. He knows them. And so here's how this applies to us in the 21st century. Here's how we... This is very specific prophecy. As I've said before, right? God is most concerned with the obedience and the holiness of his people. Christians. Those who Jesus Christ came to save. Right? Individually, we use the word Christians. Corporately, we say the word church. God is most concerned with their pursuit of holiness. The Bible teaches us that Christians are called to live different than the world around us. The Bible says, right, we, we, we're, we're called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. When you were saved, you were called from darkness to light. From death to life. We're called from a slave to to sin, to a slave to Christ. We're made new. We're changed. We are now set apart. That's positional sanctification. There's ongoing sanctification where we become more like Christ, but there is a positional where we're sanctified. We are set apart. God says, mine. Jesus puts it like this while talking to his disciples, right? Matthew chapter 5, 
probably all familiar with this. He says, you are the light of the world. He's talking to his disciples here. He says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Like something has happened to you. You've been set on a hill. You've been set apart. He says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. He's using just some logic here. Like, you probably wouldn't do that. But on a stand, you you put it on a stand. It gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There's something that happens when we are saved. Something that changes. He says, you are the light of the world. You are. This isn't a suggestion. It's not multiple choice. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. I, I, no, no, you are. It's not a, you should be, you can be, you are the light of the world. And essentially the call here is for Christians to live radically different lives. So much that what? Others notice. They, they, they see, just like people notice light, they should notice the way we live. It's different. You can see light from pretty far away. Um, one study shows that a person with average vision can see just a simple candle from like a mile and a half away if there's no obstructions. That's a long way to see a little candle. And, and, and here Jesus' assertion is aimed to the fact that the Christian's lives should be visibly different. It's very, very simple. See, that was the call to Amos's people, or the people in Amos's time, to God's people then, and it's the call to Christians now. We're called to live different. And the point of living differently, as this text communicates and all the rest of Scripture communicates, is that so they may see your good works and think you're awesome. Absolutely not. It's so they give glory to who? To God. God gets the glory. Those around us see our good works, and God gets glory. And God receives the glory because it is God who redeems, restores, and renews rebellious sinners. He saves us. He changes us. Rebel sinners, right? Once on our way, according to our own desires, living to fulfill our own desires, to build our own kingdom, the kingdom of self. No regard for God. And God steps in. He intervenes. And he, and he saves a people for his glory. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. Apostle Paul tells the church in Rome. He intervenes. He saves. He does the work that you could never do And when God's chosen people who have been saved and set apart on account of the death of God's only Son, Jesus Christ, whom He sent to pay the penalty for our sins as a substitute, when we disobey God, we fail to bring glory to God. If you call yourself a Christian, and you continue to walk in habitual disobedience, you are not pleasing God. That's just simply put. 
And listen, this idea should not be complex concept for us to comprehend. I mean, logically, right, from a fundamental, uh, just innate, anthropological understanding of who we are as humans and, and, and how things work around us, we see that the simplest forms of disobedience dishonor the one to which the disobedience is aimed. Very simply put, right? I'm going to give you an example. If you've ever owned a pet, uh, maybe some of you are pet owners in here, and we're just going to use a dog for an example. I'm more familiar with dogs than I am with other pets, so we're going to use this for illustration purposes. Say your dog is a jumper. We all know that person that has the jumper dog, right? And every time new people come around, the dog just jumps all over that person. It wants to meet that person. It's, I mean, you're probably thinking of this dog right now. You can see this dog. Maybe it's your dog. And you know how it feels when you're like, get down, Rover. Get down, right? Spot, stop it. Stop. Well, you, you're grabbing it by the collar. You're pulling it. You've got to go lock it in a room. You've kind of kicked it away. You've pushed it away. You're like, just obey. How many times do we have to go through this? And you, you feel something. You feel a little embarrassed. You feel dishonored that this dog that you feed that could not survive on its own is just defiant. It's rebellious. We'll take parenting. Parenting, for another example, is very applicable here. Uh, some of you are parents, and if you're not, you've likely had someone in your life that did or does parent you. The parents in the room know that feeling that arises in us when our kids are disobedient. Like, there's something that happens inside of us, and it's only heightened. It's worse when they do it in public. When others are watching and they're blatantly disobedient, when, when others see the rebellion, the disobedience, I mean, it's something about that public act that brews strong emotions in us. Uh, for some of you, maybe you feel small, incapable, you feel weak. Some feel violated and, and angry. Most feel disrespected and dishonored. Some of them, it, it's just all of the above. And all these feelings are heightened because why? They're our children. They're our children who we know and have invested ourselves and we care for and they couldn't provide for themselves. Give them everything. And there they are, defiant rebellious, disobedient. Look, I don't worry about, you know, too much when other kids, like, disobey me. Like, I might not like it, or I'm not really going around, like, telling other kids to, or to obey me. But, like, when my kids are disobedient, rightly so, it stirs something up. And if they do it in front of others, boy, is it height. And here, God says, Israel, you are mine. House of Jacob. The specific people I made a covenant with. He says, these are people that I have cared for. I have protected. I've provided for. But now, because of your disobedience, there is judgment coming your way. I will punish you. God says not only am I punishing a specific people, I am punishing them for specific sins. There's intentionality here. And just like a good parent, right, tells their children why they are being disciplined, why they are being punished, it doesn't just leave an ambiguous idea of you're just wrong. God gives them specific reasons why this judgment is coming. Look at verses 14 and 15 here. He says, I will punish the altars of Bethel and the horns 
of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. Verse 15, I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Declares the Lord here. He's just uh, reiterating the fact that this is God's word. This is what God is saying. Here we see that God's deliberate judgment is aimed at specific sins here. So it's aimed at two specific sins. One, false worship. Two, materialism. False worship is what we see first, and materialism is what we see next. Let's look at false worship. So Amos mentions Bethel, Bethel, six times in this book. And and here it's just very plainly put. He says, I will punish the altar of Bethel. So God was not happy with the situation here. Uh, Bethel was one of the sites where Jeroboam set up golden calves for worship in the northern kingdom. 1 Kings 12, 26 through 33 tells us of this. Uh, Once again, let me remind you that uh, 1 Kings, uh, we we get a lot of um, um, complimentary uh, language and storytelling in 1 Kings 2. Read through that too. You'll see a lot of this working together. A lot of uh, historical um, timeline that we'll see that helps us understand this prophecy. I want to read uh, just 1 Kings 12, 26 through 33 for us. So here's what had happened, right? And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifice in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. So he's saying like if they go and, and follow God, here's what's going to happen. He says the heart of this people would turn again to the Lord. So Jeroboam, he has some very selfish motives in mind here. And then down in verse 28 of 1 Kings 12, he says, it says, So the king took, took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Like, like you've worshipped your God long enough enough. And and here's now what you're going to do. He says, behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin. It became a sin. It became idolatry. It was wrong for him to do it. It says, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. So they were worshiping these idols, these uh, altars of false worship, rather than worshiping God. They have changed their direction. Jeroboam goes on in verse 33. It says he had devised from his own heart. This is something that he devised in his own heart. If someone tells you to trust your heart, Call him a liar. Do not trust your heart. Do not follow your heart. Our heart is deceitfully wicked. Trust God's word. Follow God's word. And here we see Jeroboam. He had, he had gone away and he had led the people down this path of destruction, of false worship. He implements a policy that promoted flagrant disobedience to God. And this was largely because of the prosperity that Jeroboam was bringing the people. So they had chosen this prosperity over true prosperity with God. Bethel portrays the epicenter of Israel's idolatry over the centuries. The mention of altars here in our text tells us that there were multiple sites for religious ceremonies. The indulgence of the people in idolatrous worship had spread throughout Bethel and beyond. 
But God says here, I'm done with this. I've had enough. I'm done with it. My, my patience has worn thin. It has disintegrated. Now I will exercise judgment. The altars will now be destroyed. It says, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. Along with the destruction of the altars, he, he goes even further and he says it defines that the horns of the altar will be cut off. And this kind of just symbolizes two things here, okay? Uh, one, that the people will no longer be able to put some of the blood from their sacrifices on the horns of the altar. This was a, a common practice. It just heightens this idea of false worship that they were doing. Uh, also, again, another common practice. They're not going to be able to grasp the horns of the altar to gain protection from punishment. Essentially, what this is communicating is that there will be no way for Israel to gain protection. God's judgment is coming. Wrath it is literally inevitable. It will be impossible to avoid. And this judgment is coming because they've exchanged true worship for false worship. False worship of their day looks different than the false worship of our day. And we must be careful in the 21st century to steer far from what we have in our day. I'm just going to give us a real quick six just, um, very common idols of worship, false worship that are prevalent in our day. There's plenty more. I'm just going to highlight a few here. One, uh, the false worship of relevancy. Being relevant. Idolizing that. becoming an, uh, Making that an, an idol where, where, where that then becomes the focus of your worship. Uh, two, second, very prevalent in modern Christianity is self-improvement or moralism. The false worship, the, the idol of self-improvement. Moralism, where if I just do more good stuff, and it's all about self-help, self-improvement, I just need to be a better me. And that's not the gospel. Uh, the third one I'll mention is uh, the false worship of influencing or celebrityism. Everybody wants to be an influencer now. And look, you have influence on those around you. You have influence. But we have this idea of celebrityism, right? And we live in this culture where everyone wants to be this celebrity and have this massive platform and have this great influence. And we do it and we, we sometimes we sacrifice this idea or the true influence that we can have on the altar of this major platform. So we neglect the things that sometimes go unnoticed in search of what? The next big thing. How can I have more impact? How can I have more influence? Why don't you start by loving your neighbor? Why don't you start by loving those around you, your coworkers? Why don't you start by witnessing to those that you know, that you know are far from the Lord. Don't overlook the things that God has given you for the things that you want. We all know that sometimes what we want is not what we need. Another one here, fourth, is the false worship of entertainment. We want to entertain. We want to be entertained. We have a short attention span. Some of y'all are fading out already. But we want to be entertained. We're not a society and a culture of thinkers anymore. We're not a society and culture of, of readers. 
We're scrollers. Want three-minute articles. Longer than three minutes? I'm not reading that. Ten pages? What? We've lost our idea of thinking. We want to be entertained. And too many in the church have resorted to entertainment purposes rather than gospel purposes. True change that comes from exhortation of God's Word. What God's Word calls us to do as a church. The fifth one I'll mention is the false worship of comfort. False worship of comfort. And this plays out in many different ways, right? We want a God that gives us the comforts of life. We want to be comfortable. We like being comfortable. Or, and then we'll add to that, right? We don't want a God that says anything that makes us uncomfortable or makes others uncomfortable. We want to avoid that. Oh, my God wouldn't do that. It's the false worship of comfort. And then finally here, the very prevalent, the false worship of the social gospel. Uh, this claims that the social reform is equivalent to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, that is not correct. It's an unbiblical view of our call to work within the world around us. I mean, Jesus just said it, right? We're called to be different. Like, like that's how they're going to see when you're different. Not by submitting to the world's ideologies. Not allowing the world's terms define God's word. These idols of false worship are rampant in our churches today. And we must be a people that object notions of false worship for genuine worship of the one true God. I think David Wells sums up this sentiment well. He says, I quote, a God with whom we are on easy terms and whose reality is a little different from our own, who is merely there to satisfy our needs, has no real authority to compel and will soon begin to bore us, end quote. How many of you are bored with God? Because, listen, that's what those things, those ideas, entertainment, self-help. You have a me-centered God, you'll have a me-centered religion. And brothers and sisters, me-centered does not save. Finally, as we close here, God speaks to the specific sin of materialism here in verse 15. He says, I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. This final verse of this chapter concerns the worship of wealth by the Israelite society. So they had gone this direction of obtaining whatever they could get at the expense of others. I mean, it's pretty clearly, clearly put here. We see there's a, they got a winter house, got a summer house, they're Houses of ivory, there's great, there's many houses, there's, there's a lot of stuff that they've obtained here. And it tells us that these houses are, they're extravagant. The prosperity of the rich at the expense of the poor, which was happening here 
is employed in extravagant and indulgent living here. These homes that they had obtained were the fruit of sinful oppression. They had developed a society that thought nothing of others and only aimed to acquire all that they could for themselves. God says, I will destroy them. I will crush them. He says, I'll destroy them because you've acquired it in a sinful way. You've done it in a way that is unjust. This is not to say that wealth is sinful for those who work hard and and there's nothing wrong with that, but it does say that wealth at the expense of others is sinful. It says that when wealth controls you, it is sinful. Do you control your money? Or does God control your money? Because God says here, it's all mine anyway. Just like that, I'll take it. I'll destroy it. Whatever you've acquired. Because it's mine. Quick closing thoughts. So time comes to an end. Got a notification on my phone that maybe some of you did, but uh, it said that today was, it was from like a flower company, and it said today was Wife Appreciation Day. Um, right, another made-up holiday. Um, but, but I see this, and, I, and I'm thinking, right, like if I only appreciate my wife on 919, isn't that today? Yeah. Like I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. If I only show appreciation, maybe now even two days of the year, right? Uh, Valentine's and now Wife Appreciation Day. Man, I'm in trouble. My, my wife isn't going to be very pleased with me. I'm not going to live as an example to my children, to, to those that I'm in community with, that, that, that see how I love my wife. And my question is that, is that how we treat God? Is, is Sunday your God appreciation day? Where, you know, I went to church. You know, I, I served. Or I did this or that. I, I gave some money and I wrote a check. And, man, okay, now, other six days, like, it's time to do me. I'm going to spend my money how I want. I'm going to live my life how I want. I'm going to treat others around me how I want to with little concern and no time for God. Is that how you're living? I mean, have you, have you bowed down to this idea of false worship? Because, brothers and sisters, that is false worship. And if that is a problem for you today, let me encourage you confess that to the Lord. Confess. Acknowledge your sin as we did earlier in our corporate confession. And then repent and, and, and turn away. And in so far as it depends on you, make war on that sin. And ask God to, to, to help you and work through you and depend on Him to do the work of transformation. Listen. Your false worship is leading you, guiding you, then ultimately it will destroy you. There's judgment coming. There's judgment coming for all. For some, Christ has absorbed the final judgment. He's absorbed it. He's taken the wrath that we deserve upon Him. Romans 3.21 
26 kind of shows us here this. So there's deliberate judgment. There's also deliberate salvation. Romans 3, 21 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then then here's what he says here. For there is no distinction. We all know this, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The, The Greek word for all here is all. Everybody. All of you. Me. Each and every single person that's ever put on a pair of shoes and are not, that, that, that stepped foot on the earth. We've sinned. We've offended holy God. And because of that, we fall short of the glory of God. But we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, there's a deliberate way. There's a specific way here. And then in verse 25, I love this verse, right? Because it shows God's thought in this. Whom God put forward. He put him forward. Like, like God does that. He is active here as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Do do you have faith? Have you trusted in the deliberate salvation that has been offered by the deliberate God? The God who rightly judges and the God who deliberately saves. Give us a moment here. We're going to close and I'm going to sing a song of reflection, but before we do, I just want to take a moment for you to reflect. Take some time to think about Maybe the idols in your own life, the the ways that you have allowed unhealthy patterns. Maybe you've allowed false idols and things of this world to elevate themselves to an improper place in your life. My prayer is that you would see that There's redemption. There's forgiveness. That is only through Christ. Let me give you a moment to pause, think, then I'll pray, and then the band will come up and lead us in a closing song. Father God, my my prayer is that there would be no one that leaves here today without acknowledging their need for a Savior, and then trusting Christ as that Savior. Father, help us to see as your people that you are a God who is deliberate. You have purpose in all that you do. And even when we don't understand it, help us to joyfully submit to it. That you would carry out your will that you would make much of your name, that you would use us even, Christ's covenant fellowship, this body of believers, to be lights in a lost, broken world, that we would live unapologetically committed to your word and to all that it teaches Help us now, even as we confess things that maybe we've tried to sweep under the rugs, that we've tried to hide. Help us to remember that you know us 
from head to toe. There's nothing that we can hide from you, so let us be a people that confess it freely, trusting that God will work and make us new. Spirit working in and through us. Praise you for that. Praise you for Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.